I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session The Eastern Curlew, featuring Harry Sadler in conversation with Elsa Piper, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hi everyone, it's lovely to be back in the Belongel. My name's Ailsa Piper and uh, I have met some of you before, but for those of you who don't know, I've written a couple of memoir type books and some stuff for the theatre and I've been an actor and uh, director and a really relatively frequent visitor to this beautiful festival. So I'm thrilled to be back here this year. And I'm even more thrilled to have sitting beside me Harry Sadler, who is the author of this absolutely beautiful book. And may I say, a beautifully presented book about a very beautiful bird. Um, So Harry is the author of We Both Know, 10 Stories About Relationships, and also another book called Small Moments, a novel about the aftermath of the Canberra bushfires of 2003. In 2014, he was the joint winner of the Melbourne Writers' Festival Blurb Inc. Blog-to-Book Challenge for his blog called Noticing Animals. And that resulted in his third book, Not Birdwatching, Reflections on Noticing Animals. His non-fiction writing about the ecological, physical and philosophical – you try saying that three times quickly (laughs) – Interactions Between Humans and Animals has been published online at Mianjin and the Wheeler Centre and in print in The Lifted Brow. And he's been shortlisted for The Lifted Brow's Prize for Experimental Nonfiction. So what all that tells you is he's a really, really good writer. Um, But today we're going to be talking, of course, about the Eastern Curlew, the extraordinary life of a migratory bird. So please make Harry feel welcome. Um, You know, on the surface, this is a fairly straightforward story. It's about an epic journey. And may I say, it's a journey that makes Homer or Pilgrim's Progress look like rank beginners. This little tiny bird travels distances that will blow your mind. So I thought what we might do is just get Harry to tell us the basics about the bird and then we'll unpack the book. Harry. Thanks, Elsa. And thanks, everyone, for coming out. It's lovely to see so many people here. Uh, yeah, so the eastern curlew is the largest migratory shorebird in the world. There are about 100 species of migratory shorebird worldwide and about a third of those migrate to Australia. There are a lot of birds that migrate various distances, of course. Um, the shorebirds are really the champions of it, though. So they migrate in a round trip of about 20,000 kilometres every year. Um, they spend... The southern hemisphere. Just say it summer. again. Twenty thousand <laughs> kilometres, and just would you just it, tell us the size of so, this particular? So the bird? eastern curlew is about the size of a chicken. Um, some of the some of the species, the smallest species of migratory shorebird we get in Australia is one called the red-necked stint. Stint means something very little, and that's what a red-necked stint is. It's a little bit bigger than a sparrow, and that does the same distance migration. It's not just the about the sheer distance, it's about the distances that they fly at a time. So most migratory shorebirds, when they're leaving Australia at the end of our summer, about March or April, most of them will gather up into Roebuck Bay, which is just south of Broome in WA. From there they will fly to the Yellow Sea, 
between China and South Korea. They'll do that all in one go. That's a distance of several thousand kilometres. They will... Because fly. a lot of them can't swim, that's, that's right, right. They, they can't, they they can't down, swim. There's, they're lost. They're, yeah, they're not like ducks or albatross or, or things. If, if they get exhausted and pitch into the ocean, they die. And we live in a migration route. There are about eight or nine migration routes across the globe called flyways. We live in one called the East Asian Australasian Flyway. And there so I'm going to slow you down about <laughs> that. So think about them as kind of, you know, highways around the world. Yeah. But um, flyways. That's right, flyways. And the East Asian Australasian Flyway has a lot of water in it. So the, the shorebirds in our flyway really drew the short straw. Um, so, yeah, they'll fly... The first thing they do when they can read a migrate is they go vertically up about 2,000 metres. They get the jet stream behind them. That gives them a bit of a kick along. Even so, they've still got to fly. They flap the whole way. They're not, they're not soaring or gliding birds. They're, they just flap in. They'll flap for days on end. Uh, they will sleep half of their brain, one hemisphere at a time, just in micro-sleeps. So one, one half of their brain will be flying, will be sleeping for a few seconds, the other half of the brain is keeping, keeping them flying. Uh, of course, they can't feed in the air while they're, while they're flying, while they're migrating. So in the weeks before they migrate, they feed and feed and feed at any available opportunity and they almost double their body weight in fat. Uh, they will put on 80% of their body weight in fat. When you see them when they're about to migrate, they look like balloons that are inflated almost to the point of bursting. And you think, how could this bird possibly get off the ground? But they're actually in peak fitness at that stage. Um, and then that's that fat is the fuel for their migration and they burn it all off and then feed and feed again in the Yellow Sea. Way up in the Arctic. Well, the Yellow Sea isn't even in the Arctic, so the Yellow Sea is just a stopping over point. It's, oh. it's just midway. And then they've got another couple of thousand kilometres to go to get up to their breeding grounds in the Arctic. And then they're in the breeding grounds for six weeks. Um, they get down to business very quickly. The, um, the males, as, as male animals all over the world do, they have to prove their fitness. And so the males, as soon as After finish, flying 10,000 yeah, days, they've got to prove and, the and, world's <laughs> And so then the males do these display flights where they fly 15 metres up into the air and call the whole way um, to prove their fitness. They they breed, they they lay eggs, um, the eggs hatch, the, the parent birds look over to you know, sort of make sure that everything's okay, but the chicks can basically feed and look after themselves from the moment they hatch. And then the parents take off back to Australia and the chicks raise themselves. They grow very, very quickly. They fledge into their flight feathers and they do their first migration from Siberia back to Australia at only six weeks of age. <laughs> and there's one thing, one other fact, which is my favourite one, which I haven't mentioned, is that these birds, are, as you can imagine, are very, very finely evolved towards this extreme lifestyle. And one of their adaptations is that before they migrate, their um, less essential bodily systems, the ones that aren't going to be used on the migration, like their reproductive system, which they don't use while they're flying. They'll need it when they get to the breeding grounds, obviously, but not while they're migrating. Their digestive system, which they don't use while they're flying. Their excretory system, which they don't use, again, while they're flying. All these will shrivel up into almost nothing just to save them a few precious grams of weight that they don't have to carry and then grow back straight away as soon as they, as soon as they hit ground again. So, you know, these little creatures are re really, really astonishing. And I wanted to know 
where exactly they might be at the moment? At the moment, they will be either just getting ready to leave the breeding grounds or on their southward migration. The, um, the southward migration away from the breeding grounds tends to be a lot more leisurely because obviously they don't have the reproductive pressure of having to get to the breeding grounds. They're, they're going to spend six months in Australia so they can take their time getting here. So those will be slowly working their way down. Um, there is, though, one notable exception to this general rule, which is a species called the bar-tailed godwit, which is worth mentioning for... You'll find out in just a couple of seconds. Um, for whatever reason, we don't quite know, it follows the opposite strategy and has a very slow, leisurely flight north to the breeding grounds and a very fast, direct flight south. It's one of the larger migratory shorebirds. It's a little bit smaller than an eastern curlew, so probably sort of you know, about that big. Just to give you an idea of the feet of these birds when they're flying and how extraordinary they are when they're flying. A bar-tailed godwit called E1, I think, was satellite-tracked in a study a, a while ago, about 10 or 15 years ago maybe, migrating south from the breeding grounds in a big arc over the ocean to New Zealand, not even in a straight line but in, in an arc of about 11,000 kilometres and it did that in nine days without stopping. <laughs> Crazy, isn't so, it? So they're pretty impressive birds. Mm. You know, one of the things that's lovely about this book, aside from all the delicious information about a really remarkable creature with whom we share the planet, is that it's written by someone who has the imagination and the uh, spirit of a writer. And so every so often, you know, there are observations that are, I would say, particularly writerly. And one of them is about our inability to grasp these sorts of things because most of us, our imaginations can't actually stretch to that, you know, and how do we expand? And you make the point that it's almost impossible mm. for us to protect something unless we love it, but mm. then how do we come to love it unless we've sort of experienced it because mm. we can't imagine it? So the act of imagining is a very big part of this book. And I'd quite like to just step back now from the bird... <laughs> And let's talk a little bit about the fledgling Harry. Um, Harry pre-fledging. I, I love the word fledgling fledge. bird watcher. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about your childhood because birds did actually grab you in childhood even though you're not... I mean, are you a yeah. twitcher? Are you a twitcher? So I, I consider myself a bird watcher. Twitcher is a very particular category. And in fact, right. most bird watchers don't call themselves bird watchers. Right. Most call themselves birders, which even that birders. is a little okay. even that is a little bit too verby. It's a little bit too active for my right. Right. bird watching practice. Um, a twitcher is a very particular kind of kind of bird watcher or birder. They're they're the ones who if some incredibly rare bird turns up out of nowhere in some corner of the world, they will drop everything and spend thousands of dollars to fly there and to see it. I'm that's a little bit too extreme for me. I also, I also well, but also you make a very beautiful <laughs> point in the book actually, which is that the whole thing about let's go and see a rare bird is in a way celebrating the fact that this is near to extinction. So, you know, the action of seeking out rare mm. is actually celebrating rare in some ways. Yeah, and, it's, and it does make me a little uncomfortable mm. that, um, I mean, obviously no one who likes birds or likes any kind of natural wildlife, obviously we want them to to be saved but we do get very excited when we see something that's a rarity because it's a rarity and it mm. is worth taking a little step back and thinking uh, why are we getting excited about that um recently in in the last 18 months or so in victoria we've had when where i'm from i, I live in melbourne 
Uh, we've had a lot of unusual birds that aren't usually found in Victoria, including coastal Victoria, turning up, and the bird watching community have been getting very, very excited about them. The reason they've all been turning up, though, is because of the drought inland. Mm. And so these birds that we're getting excited about, these rare birds we're getting excited about, are actually signs of an environment that's in incredible peril and incredible mm. stress. And I think it's incumbent on us, on us to remember that. It's okay, obviously, it's okay to get excited about seeing a bird um, or seeing anything, but it's incumbent on us to also remember the reason why they're there or the reason why we're getting excited mm. or why these birds are rare. So let's go back to the excited little Harry. Um, sorry for that diversion. Excited over common birds. <laughs> so you first really became birdie um, when you were quite young, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Canberra and for those of you who have been to Canberra, it's there's a lot of birds. There's birds everywhere. So birds are sort of always part of my life. But then when I was about 12, my parents bought off some friends of theirs a holiday house in a patch of forest down on the far south coast in New South Wales. Uh, my dad, who was... He, he corrected me once when I was doing a, doing a, a talk about about this. I, I described him as a botanist and he came up and corrected me afterwards and said, no, I'm a plant physiologist. <laughs> <laughs> so his, his PhD was in plant physiology, but he was an amateur botanist, so he's interested in identifying plants. So... Anyway, we got this property in this beautiful patch of wet sclerophyll forest, um, just about 45 minutes inland from Bermagui, for those of you who know the far south coast of New South Wales. It's a very, very beautiful part of, of the world. Um, and my dad started identifying and keeping a list of all the all the plant species on the property, and I, being a 12-year-old boy, plants were a bit boring for me. You know, they just stand there and don't do anything. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've wised up to that now, but no, I've, my, my latest thing is learning to identify eucalypt species, and I'm very excited about it. Um, but I've you know, been more interested in things that move around and flit in a very obvious and make, it, make a commotion um, and announce themselves rather than just standing there and photosynthesising. <laughs> um, but also being a 12-year-old boy and you know, sort of wanting to follow in the footsteps of my dad, I started keeping a list of the birds on on this property. And there was one bird that I identified I saw in particular. I was using my parents' old, you know, very antiquated um, two-volume Slater field guide for those of you who know. It was, you know, um, all the non-passerines are in black and white and the passerines of the illustrations are not very good. Um and so I saw this this bird sitting out, in and out of a grevillea and I couldn't identify it. I knew it was a honeydew of some kind. Being 12 years old, my you know, full of 12-year-old hubris, my first thought was not, well, I need to get a better bird, bird book. My first thought was, what if no one has seen this bird before? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I went to spend, spend my pocket money on my first field guide, which is this one here, which is the Simpson and Dave field guide, and I quickly found out that many, many people had seen this bird before and it was... An eastern spinebill, which you probably get up here, is a very beautiful little little honey eater. Um, but that started me off. And bird watchers, birders often talk about their spark bird, the bird that oh, starts them off. So that was my spark bird, the eastern spinebill. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, but then getting this field guide, I then it opened up a whole continent's worth of species to me, and so I, you know, I flicked through it. I want of, you to read. Would you I, read the description of the? Eastern curlew, because yeah. listen to these words, and you tell me, okay, it's about birds, but tell me if it's not also sparking a writer, because the <laughs> words are beautiful. Yeah, so I flicked through these, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds, um, and there's page after page in particular of migratory shorebirds, and they're 
when I get to. Uh, and they sort of all look quite similar, but they're quite there's all subtle differences and there's so many of them and I was sort of reading about the descriptions of them and this all caught my attention and then I turned the page and there's this one with this huge long bill. Um, in my childhood memory, this page, the eastern curl on this page is enormous and is dwarfing everything else. You can see <laughs> it's really not. It's <laughs> but you know, our childhood, our childhood memories, our memories of things from childhood sort of magnify everything else. So... I have this memory of turning a page and seeing this you know, bill sort of protruding beyond the page, like a fold-out kind of thing, but it doesn't, of course. Um, but, yeah, the description of the Eastern Curlew is lovely. Um, Eastern Curlew, Numenius madagascariensis. So just stop there for a moment. So madagascariensis, there is an explanation. That it's not from Madagascar It's not all. from within 6,000 kilometres of Madagascar. Yeah, it's, so it's a misnamed bird for a start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the naming Large. is interesting. Let's stop for just a okay. second. Hold that thought, though. Yeah. Um, so the naming is very interesting because do you want to just talk about why it got misnamed and also the thing about Eastern, about Yeah, so... Um, it's fascinating. I'll actually... I'll, I'll read through that list of the curlers because that'll illustrate it. What, oh, what page was that on? 47. 47. Yeah, there's a list. Sorry, I, I, <laughs> I, you, I don't... I'm not a bird person except so. that I like them. But honestly, this bird has completely turned me on. I just am <laughs> mad about it. But there's a list of, on page 47 of the names of these birds and you just wait. Yeah, so there are, so the curlews are in a genus called Numenius, um, which means it's Greek for new moon because they've got this very slender little new moon-shaped bill. Isn't um, that lovely? So it's lovely and descriptive. There are eight species of curly worldwide. Um, and I'd like is, you to pick my favourite. You see. <laughs> And, and this is what our children, two of them are extinct and one of them, and, and so the, and the rest of them are still with us. So this is the eight species. The little curlew, the Eskimo curlew, the wimbrel, the bristle-thighed curlew, <laughs> the slender-billed curlew, the Eurasian curlew, the long-billed curlew, not to be confused with the slender-billed curlew, and the eastern curlew. Um, Isn't that beautiful? The bristle-thighed <laughs> curlew. I mean, come what, on. What you might What's not have, to love? What you may have noticed from that list is that the eastern curlew is the only one that's named for where it isn't. <laughs> um, to be eastern, obviously, it has to be east of something. These birds are all named by 18th century European taxonomists, so an eastern curlew is obviously east of Europe, which in the sort of 18th century colonial mindset, means east of civilization. that's east of the important things. Um, so it's a very loaded term, more so when you consider the fact that um, it's also actually known as the Far Eastern Curlew. So bird watching or bird naming has these terms, still use these terms like the Far East and the Orient. There are Oriental cuckoos and Oriental plovers, which we don't generally use outside yeah. birding. It's a yeah. bit iffy. Um but the, but the, yes, but the, the scientific name, though, is Numenius madagascariensis. Uh, the reason why it's called madagascariensis, it doesn't go within 6,000 kilometres of Madagascar. Uh, it does go to Makassar in Indonesia. In the 18th century, um, the collectors who collected the specimens and shipped them back to Europe where they were named and described obviously made a transcription error or the taxonomists described made a transcription error or maybe they just been very Eurocentric in their mindset. Maybe they just couldn't be bothered making the distinction between Madagascar and Makassar, 6,000 kilometres distant. The thing about 
the thing about um, taxonomy and naming of species is there's a very rigid um, sort, of, sort of rule um, in taxonomy whereby once a species name is accepted in the literature and um, that species name cannot be changed, is fixed forevermore unless the species gets fundamentally reclassified, which, to be honest, with the eastern curlew, unless, unless we suddenly discover the eastern curlew is in fact two species that we've been conflating into one species the whole time, the eastern curlew is going to be stuck being of Madagascar <laughs> in the scientific name forevermore. It's bizarre, um, isn't it? But yeah, back to that description, yes. though. So, Eastern Curlew, Numenius madagascariensis. Large wader, very long, down-curved, black bill, pink at base. Pale eyebrow. Pale eyebrow. <laughs> Streaked, dark brown and buff above. Buff. In, including well, including for rump. For a little boy, <laughs> these words, they made you erotic. Sorry. Slightly paler below. Size fifty one to sixty one fifty five to sixty one centimeters. Voice mournful sorry mournful carer higher curly curly. So the curlew the name is onomatopoeic. Um, it their their voice their call more or less sounds like someone saying curly curly. Um, habitat estuaries, mudflats, mangroves, sand spits. So that's our hero. That's mm-hmm. our Odyssey should bird. I, should I pass the feather around? Yes, let's yeah. do it. So I, when we were talking about the session, I said to Harry, do you want to bring some pictures? And he said, oh, no, no, I don't really want to. And it's true, you don't need them. The book <laughs> opens them up. But he said very generously, but I have got a feather from a curlew and I thought I would bring it and so, you could pass it around. So, yeah, we're talking about gently. imagining the bird and it's, you, know, you can see this lovely illustration that the my publishers did. And it comes Yeah, that's right. It's one of the primary wing feathers. Um, I found this last October on the beach in Shoalhaven Heads. The curlews had just returned to Australia. Uh, they molt once a year. Um, obviously, they're in, when they're in the Arctic, they can't molt because it takes a long time to regrow the feathers and, then, and they're not there for long enough because they're in Australia for several months. They have time to molt and regrow feathers. Birds molt in feathers every year because feathers get worn and they don't do the job. They don't work as well as insulators. They don't work as well as flights. So they need to regrow new ones. It's an unusual thing. What's unusual about this feather is that it and a whole bunch of others carried an eastern curlew on a round trip last year of 20,000 kilometres. <laughs> so I'll pass this around. And if you look very, very closely, you'll be able to see just the tip is worn down and white and imagine, when you look at that, imagine that frame being from the friction of the air from every flap for 20,000 kilometres. So that's the lovely news about the curlew. There's some not so lovely news. Um, but before we get to that, maybe let's... Would you like to hear a little bit about the first time Harry saw? Let's have a little reading. So the first time you actually got to see them in the Mud Islands. Now, anyone here who's from Melbourne, in the middle of Port Phillip Bay, there are these things called the Mud Islands. I lived there for 28 years and didn't know. Yeah, so the Mud Islands are a little ring of of sand, not mud for starters. <laughs> so they must have been named on a rainy day, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Port Phillip Bay, as some of you may may know, is a very, very shallow bay. Until a few thousand years ago, it was actually a floodplain for the Yarra River and then the sea levels rose and flooded the whole bay. So where the rip is, there used to be a waterfall um, and the the shipping lane through Port Phillip Bay follows the the bed of the old riverbed um, because that's the deepest bit. So Port Phillip Bay is only 13 metres deep on average despite being a vast bay. And the mud islands are formed because the the sand spit that um, or the sandy shoals that are just under the surface of the water, where the mud islands are, the sand rises just far enough to be permanently above the water line, maybe only a metre or two, not very high. So there are a ring of islands about five kilometres in diameter with a lagoon of seawater in the middle. And they're... Um, top destination for migratory shorebirds when they get to Victoria is um, that lagoon in the middle has great you know, feeding potential. There's a lot of small invertebrates and things that they can they can eat. They're way out in the in the middle of the bay, so they're a long way away from anything. No land predators can get there. You can see birds of, birds of prey coming from a long way away, so they're a great place to go and feed. And I went there on a guided birding tour when I started to get interested in migratory shorebirds. So this is about that trip. The water around the mud islands is too shallow for the captain of our small boat to safely navigate, so we jump out and wade in knee-deep water onto shore. There are many birds to be spotted on the outer perimeter of the islands, terns in particular, and hundreds of black swans feeding on the seagrass beds that surround the mud islands. But it's only on entering the lagoon in the island's centre, hidden from the shore by a kind of hedge of shrubs, that you see what makes the mud islands so special. The lagoon is where the great majority of shorebirds feed. It's one o'clock in the afternoon when our guide leads us around the edge of the first island. We sit down on the edge of the salt marsh overlooking the lagoon and have lunch a picnic of sorts on a tiny scrap of sand in the middle of a vast bay with the towers of Melbourne's CBD in the dim distance to the north. A dozen or so sharp-tailed sandpipers, which is a small species of migratory shorebird, forage in the shallow ponds scattered amid the salt marsh, twitching warily at our presence, focusing on the necessity of their feeding but occasionally throwing sharp glances at us with their dark eyes. Despite their wariness, they don't flee. After lunch, we cross the lagoon, wading through the shallow water and holding our assorted cameras, telescopes and binoculars carefully up in the air. Our route takes us straight towards the godwits, knots and stints in the lagoon centre. They spy us coming, but they only flee at the last possible moment, much later than I expect them to based on other bird encounters I've had. Every wingbeat a shorebird makes over summer robs energy from the coming migration. Within the limited capacity of a bird to understand the intentions of a human walking towards it, fleeing must be treated as a last resort. We reach the other side of the lagoon and continue our circumnavigation of the islands, eventually returning to the spot where we landed. Our guide radios the boat. We've been on the mud islands for about three hours and we've seen hundreds of individual shorebirds in nine species and sundry other birds as well. We think that the day is over, but as our boat returns to Queenscliff, it disturbs a group of four eastern curlews on a beach near the harbour. 
Most of the shorebirds we see on the mud islands were small, scurrying close to the ground and frantically pecking at the mud. The curlews, at rest on the beach, seem imperious by comparison, many times larger than the smallest shorebirds. Each curlew has a down-curved bill, like that of an ibis, which seems almost as long as its body. Their bodies are covered in cream and dark brown feathers. As the boat approaches, they stand upright and tall, watching us carefully before making their decision. Opening long, pointed wings, each bird, the largest migratory shorebirds in the world, takes flight away from us, calling as they go in voices that occupy an uncertain zone between honk and wail. As they disappear, our guide who so far has been knowledgeable and happy to see any bird, but has projected an air of having seen them all many times before, turns to face us. Weren't they spectacular? She grins. <laughs> um, so that's the first sighting. And I'm yeah. just conscious of time to tell a very big story. So I'm going to just shorthand for you and say, Harry becomes determined <laughs> to follow their migration and so he kind of crowdfunds and um, arranges to go after them. So can you just talk to us a little about the dangers facing them that you saw? Yeah, so I followed the migration up to the Yellow Sea, which is between China and Korea. Uh, The Yellow Sea has vast mudflats. They're truly extraordinary. Um, So shorebirds feed on intertidal mudflats because mudflats are very, very rich ecosystems beneath the surface of the mud. There are just uncountable numbers of invertebrates, all kinds of species. There's there's you know, crabs and clams and worms and you know, crustaceans and all sorts of things, which all make very rich food for a very energy-intensive migratory bird. And the mudflats in the Yellow Sea, which have been fed by several very large rivers for millennia, are... Uh, vast they extend for up to 10 kilometers offshore the mud is meters deep um and so there's a lot of habitat for shorebirds to go to so the yellow sea for birds migrating in the east asian australasian flyway acts as a bottleneck pretty much all the birds that migrate in our flyway go through the yellow sea which is a fairly small area and feed up before going on to the to the breeding grounds in, in siberia Unfortunately, as you can imagine, the Yellow Sea also has millions and millions of people living around it and a lot of industry, a lot of pollution, and in particular, a lot of habitat destruction. There's a particular word that we use for when intertidal mudflats or wetlands of any kind really are developed and built on, and that word is reclaimed. There's land reclamation, which as you can imagine, is an incredibly loaded word. <laughs> um, it suggests that we're taking back what's rightfully ours, mm. um, but it's just a very polite way of saying destruction. Uh, vast amounts of the intertidal mudflat in the OSC have been destroyed uh, to make farming land, but also a lot to make factories, a lot to make ports, like the port of Donggang where I went. A lot of those factories and a lot of those ports are making and distributing a lot of the products that we buy. Think of all the things that you see that have made in China on the label. Those things are all made somewhere. Not all of them are made in the LSE, but a lot of them are made in the LSE and shipped out through the LSE. Because so much intertidal mudflat 
in the IOC has been destroyed to facilitate this booming industry. The the population numbers of many migratory shorebird species are crashing. Um, they're very, very sight-faithful birds, which means that they go to the same patch of mudflat every year, year after year. The reason there are so many species, 100, 100 species worldwide and about 33 in, in our flyway, is because each has evolved to feed in a slightly different niche in the mud. So eastern curlews having very long bills feed on crabs, great knots having shorter bills feed on clams that are just below the surface of the mud. Some need to feed on very firm mud, some need to sort of filter feed through looser, sloppier kind of mud. So they can't relocate if their habitat is destroyed. And because One, can I ask yeah. you just to illustrate yeah. this? There's a beautiful moment in the book where you talk about the car park. Yeah, so um, while I was researching the impacts on migratory birds, and as I said before, it's not just shorebirds that migrate, um, I came across one interesting slash horrifying anecdote from the US, and it was about migratory greaves, which are a water bird. They're not a shorebird, but they also do migrate. Um, and I can't remember when it was, but it was a few years ago, a flock of migrating greaves migrating in bad weather as he crashed and died in the car park of a Walmart because they'd mistaken it in the bad weather in the fog for a lake. Um, and, and it just brings together yeah, that thing of all when, the goods that are and produced. When, <laughs> and when I think about that story now, I think mm. about not just that horrible thing of habitat loss, but also all of the goods and products made in the LSC that must have been inside that Walmart mm. as well. Um, but, yeah, the population declines of... And, and, again, decline is another one of these very loaded words. It's a very passive word. It's like, it's like no, oh, these birds are just drifting away. What can you do? Um, the populate, population killings, basically, of mighty shorebirds. Well, there's a word... For, uh, I some, mean, this is the writer instinct yeah. because the other thing that really impacts on me is that Harry says... We should stop using the idea that something's extinct as or, a noun. Yeah, or something that goes extinct, goes or, it, extinct or it went extinct. Or it went extinct. We should say it's a verb that we should say we extincted the bird because that's our culpability in it. The bird mm. didn't just get extinct yeah. or decide to be extinct. Yeah, and so um, so many species of migratory shorebird are critically endangered and population loss is as much as 8% a year for many species. The eastern curlew has lost... 80% of its population in the last 30 years, pretty much entirely due to habitat loss. Mm. Um, there are historic records from the Western Port, just east of Melbourne, where I spend a lot of time, um, of from the 19th century, of flocks of 2,000 eastern curlews. I saw a flock there a couple of years ago of 90 eastern curlews, and that was a large enough number to be considered a significant sighting. So that gives you an idea of how much the numbers have gone down. Mm, mm. Um, I don't want the conversation to turn entirely into the bad news because the book has a lot of, I think, really hopeful things in it as well, none more so than the little boy in that. <laughs> Do you want to tell that story, this little boy? Oh, uh, yeah, so, mm. so I actually had a couple, a couple of little encounters with, with children um, when I was up in, up in the LSC, one, I went to an exhibition of art about shorebirds and there was this little boy going around um, and he must have been like only about 10 or something and he was talking talking about and he was going around with his dad and he was talking about how beautiful all the shorebirds were and they're not, they're not like parrots or songbirds or things, they're not colourful and stuff but 
it really gave me heart to think that even these sort of you know, fairly anonymous-looking kind of mottled brown birds that have this extraordinary lifestyle could be considered beautiful by a little boy. Um, I had another lovely encounter in China in the EIC at a nature reserve called Yalujiang, which is a mudflat nature reserve. Um, and I was watching the birds there and there was a little girl, maybe sort of seven or eight, at the most with with her mum and her mum spoke a bit of English and so I had my binoculars and my little telescope to watch the birds set up and the mum came over and asked if the little girl could have a look and so the little girl had a look and then you know, she was really amazed um, and then they went off and do, to do their thing and then a few minutes later the little girl ran up to me and sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said something in, or no, not on the shoulder because she couldn't reach my shoulder but you know, <laughs> tugged my shirt or something I don't know um, and said something to me in Chinese, which I couldn't understand. But then her mum came up and said to me, she just wanted to let you know that she saw some other birds over there. <laughs> I'm just curious to know, in the migration of the feather, where's it got to? <laughs> Has it made it to Siberia yet? <laughs> Down there in Siberia. T- um, tell us if any of you are in Siberia and we'll get them to turn the heat in up for you. <laughs> um, you know, you perhaps you could just give us a little bit of an insight into what it's like in the place where they feed and where they breed because that is Um, pretty thrilling. Yeah, so I I spent only a few weeks. I've got a day job and I had to take time off from work so I took only three weeks off, unfortunately, to go up to the Yellow Sea and it was a week in China and two weeks in Korea. I went to an island in the the northwest of South Korea called Gangwa, um, which is surrounded by these huge mudflats and it's a very important site for eastern curlews. and I decided to go for a walk out on the mudflats to sort of get an idea of what it was like to be in the shorebirds' habitat. And so this is a description of the walk, the walk I did out on these vast mudflats. I walked a couple of hundred metres out. Away from the shore, the contours of the mud stopped being just aesthetic and started to become topography, something to be negotiated. My route was dictated by the rises and swells, the channels and valleys laid into the mud flat. On high ground, the mud was firm and walking across it was brisk and easy. Exposed to the sun and air, the mud had become more solid than I'd expected it to be. Salt from the retreated sea dusted the surface with white that looked like lichen from a distance. In the small gullies and runs formed by drainage streams from the surrounding fields, the mud was paler, slick and soft. The low areas were marked by piles of tiny pebbles of mud circled around pinhole burrows, whereas the high areas contained larger holes made by larger animals. The gloss of moisture in the meandering lows caught the low-angled late afternoon sun, causing parts of the mud to shine like silver. In the first blush of dusk, the mud assumed a soft magenta hue, Birds' footprints were imprinted like hatch marks on the mud, webbed for gulls, unwebbed for herons and shorebirds. I was on the mud for only a short time, half an hour, maybe less. If not for the soft mud in the lows, which formed a maze of channels, and if not for the fact that I knew the tide was coming back in, I would have walked out to the waterline where the birds were feeding. I would have looked back to see if I could imagine some small part of what it was like to inhabit their landscape. As I made my way back to the seawall, leaving my gumboot prints alongside the birds' prints, my mind turned towards home. 
Soon I would fly back to Australia. At the same time, the shorebirds would be flying north to their breeding grounds. The eastern curlews would be flying to Kamchatka and to the Abua River Delta. A few days after I left, left Gunsan, Dr Niall Moores posted on the Birds Career website of surveying the high tide roost at Yubu Island in the Gurm Estuary and finding there 2,100 eastern curlews, as well as thousands of other shorebirds. On my way home from South Korea, in Incheon Airport, which is built on a reclaimed mudflat, I walked past a sign attached to a kind of collection bucket, exhorting travellers to donate their loose change to save the world's forests. We choose what we value. So, one of the things that you say is there is no greater gift that nature can give to us than to be ignored by a wild animal. But how much longer do you think they can ignore us? There's a writer I really love, a Scottish writer called Kathleen Jamie, who writes beautiful essays about nature. Thank you. Um, and she wrote an essay in which she was talking about um, how long it might be that until... Um, we can say that there are any species on Earth that are untouched by people. I think we're probably at that point now, to be honest. Um, on the other hand, it's important for us to remember, as, as much damage as we're doing to the, to the environment and as much damage as we're, as we're doing to the planet, it's important for us to remember also that we are ourselves part of the animal kingdom and we are part of, of nature and our, a lot of our behaviours are animal behaviours. Um, I think... If we can remember that and if we can remember that we're intrinsically tied into nature, even to, even to the extent of ourselves, our own bodies, being ecosystems for all sorts of microorganisms that mm-hmm. live quite happily on us, um, I think if we can rem- remember that we are a part of this greater web of nature, it'll go... I mean, it'll help us <laughs> perhaps make the changes that we need to make. Well... As you can see, I mean, we've come to the end of our time. This is a book that could have been unpacked for about four sessions. But I I just want to remind you that Harry will be over signing in the um, bookshop. But I'd like to leave you with the line. This this book is also just full of lines that, you know, in another world, in a sort of a self-help thing, you'd pull them out (laughs) as ways to live, seriously. Um, And there were two things that struck me, one hard and one kind of profoundly hopeful. The hard one is, Harry makes the point, that no dead animal looks as dead as a dead bird. And I think the great gift of the birds is that they keep us always alive to the idea of motion and possibility. And, of course, we don't see them lying down. We don't see them sleeping. Um, But the other thing which seems to me to completely underline this book is this line, which is, and it really moves me, if there's one fundamental truth about life, it's that it wants to persist. And I think that's what underlines your book, Harry. You know, I think it's a really beautiful love song to life, even though it looks quite squarely in the face of what's challenging life. So I want to thank you for it and thank you for your time today. And go and see the book in the bookstore. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.